Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning, everybody. Um, hope y'all are all doing awesome. Uh, this morning, my name is Daniel, by the way. I co-lead a community group with Scotty Satterwhite. This morning, we're going to be kicking off John, and so I'm going to be reading John 1, 1 through 5. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Happy New Year. Thank you, one of you. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this year. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here, by the way. Um, if you're a guest, thank you for spending your Sunday with us. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Robert will bring you one. And if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So I am really looking forward to this year. The church is officially about to be three years old in a couple of days. So uh, that doesn't mean we've arrived uh, it just means we still got a lot of work to do, and so I'm looking forward to spending the majority of this year and a good part of next year, Lord willing, walking through the Gospel of John together. Church Father Augustine said of the Gospel of John that it is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough, meaning accessible enough, for a child to get in and not drown. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to walk through John together as a body, because we are all in different places in our faith journeys, and the, and the gospel of John will be timely for every single one of us, regardless of where you're at. The gospel of John was written to Greek-speaking Jews, known as the Hellenists, in order to call them to faith in Christ, in order to call them to faith in the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God, who took upon himself the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. So at its core, the Gospel of John is an evangelical, evangelistic type of writing. It's encouraging the Jews to not miss their Messiah like the Jewish leaders had done during the life of Jesus. But there's also another purpose, and that is to write uh, to edify those. He's writing to people that already believe in order to edify believers, in order to encourage them in their belief and in order them to continue in their faith. The writer of John is the Apostle John. He is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And within the 12, he was one of the three, kind of the inner circle of disciples. And within that group of three, It appears that John is the closest with Jesus. Often in the latter chapters of the book of John, we see John referencing a disciple whom 
Jesus loved. And that's understood to be this John. During the Last Supper passages, we see John actually reclining against Jesus as a picture of their relationship. And during the crucifixion, John is the only disciple who hasn't abandoned Jesus. John is the only disciple who is present at the cross as Jesus is executed. And on the day that Jesus rose, John enters the tomb before any of the other disciples. This is John. It's not John the Baptist. He's a diff- that's a different John. That's a pretty common name in that, those days. But John is a disciple of Jesus. He wrote five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, the three letters that also bear his name, and the book of Revelation. The Gospel of John is the last gospel to be written, and it's more unique than the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels. John is really intent on getting us face-to-face with Christ. He shows us several of Jesus' miracles, and we have a lot of theological matters that John is going to contend with. And so again, the goal of John... One of the main themes is belief in Christ. It's belief in Christ for eternal life. And so from the onset of the Gospel of John, we are presented with Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, God eternal. We're going to spend the next three weeks dealing with what is known as the prologue of John. I knew that was coming. I paused. I was waiting for it. Um, initially I wanted to cover the whole section today, all 18 verses of the prologue, but when I really started to dig into this text, I felt like we would be better served as a church if we slowed down a little bit and laid a good foundation for the remainder of our walk through John. The prologue of John gives us what's known as a word and a witness. John wants us to know Jesus and know confidently who Jesus is. And so our text this morning is going to present us with some truth about Jesus, some truth about his nature, his, some truth about his character, and he's going to call us to belief in who Christ is. So as we open up John together, I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Church, Jesus must be Lord of your life, your Savior, your ruler and your master for him to mean anything to you. Have you submitted your life to Christ? Do you believe in this Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning? So that's the frame that we're going to be walking with. Um, let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to jump into this prologue. Lord, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, thank you for becoming a man to save sinners. Lord, call us to faith. Call us to belief. 
call us to remember the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, John 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts his gospel the way that the Bible starts. John says, In the beginning calling us back to Genesis 1-1, where the writer of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is doing here, John wants to connect Jesus to creation. But when you look at the creation narrative in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and when you look at John's prologue, there is no discussion on the origins or the creation of Jesus. And in Genesis... There's no discussion of the creation of God. Both Genesis and the Gospel of John are telling us that God has always existed. God is before creation. God is outside of creation. God is not created, but always existed. John says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word here is logos, meaning wisdom. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And this word, Jesus, was with God. And this word, Jesus, was God. This is one way that Jesus is different from and one way that Jesus is set apart from every other deity of every other world religion. Jesus is eternal. This is the force of the gospel of John found in this one verse. Jesus is God. And everything that follows this verse until the end of John's gospel, the words and the deeds of Jesus are the activity and the words and the deeds of God himself. Not only was Jesus present at creation, Not only is Jesus pre-existence, not only is Jesus not created, but also John says that Jesus was with God. There is fellowship between the Trinity. There is intimacy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The original language of this verse suggests that the word, word, (laughs) that Jesus was face to face with God. God the Father and God the Son know one another intimately. This means that Jesus existed in the closest possible fellowship with the Father. And they took supreme delight in one another and in this relationship. And when you understand this, when you understand the type of relationship that Father and Son had with one another from eternity past, when you understand this, 
in and of itself, it should speak to the amount of love that God has for creation. That Jesus Christ would condescend in such a way, setting aside this intimacy, setting aside this relationship with God the Father in such a way in order to reconcile us back to the Father by his own death. Man, what a wondrous love. Further, John tells us that the word was God. Jesus was not created. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is not just another option of deities. Jesus is not like a God, like our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors would say. They say the word was a God, thereby making Jesus less than fully God. No, Jesus was and is God eternal. Jesus shares his nature and his character in being with God, meaning he is the same. He's the same in worth, value, dignity, and substance as God the Father. Matt Carter says that everything that can be said of God the Father can also be said of God the Son and God the Spirit because they are equal. We call this the Trinity, meaning God exists Equally and eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the onset of this work, of, from the onset of John's writings, John is planting his flag firmly in this truth that Jesus is God. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says that the emphasis of the prologue is on the revelation of the word as the ultimate disclosure of God himself. The prologue summarizes how the word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time, the sphere of history, came into this space uh, tangibly. In other words, he's saying how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. And just to reiterate, John says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was not anything made that was made. As God, Jesus was not only present at creation, but he was an active part in creation. Everything that was created, everything was created by him and created good at its inception. The God who has always existed in three equal and distinct persons created the earth and everything in it. And that includes people. However, it didn't take long, though, for people to make a real mess of everything. And as we see, God at creation in perfect relationship within himself, the Trinity, we also see that God and man had a perfect relationship with one another. Genesis tells us that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Before sin entered the world, Adam had a perfect relationship with God, his creator. And then we get to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were told they had free reign 
in the Garden of Eden. They were in perfect relationship with God. They were in perfect relationship with one another as well. They had everything they needed because God had provided for them. They were told to do told to not do one thing. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan steps into the picture and begins to deceive. He deceives Eve with lies. He convinces Adam and Eve that God is withholding things from them. You see, Satan is very deceptive. His strategy was this. He immediately diverts Adam and Eve's attention away from what they don't have. Or from what they have to what they don't have. And and he calls their minds to not all the good things God has told them they could do and enjoy, but the one thing they couldn't do. And instead of considering the overwhelming abundance that God has provided for them, Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan. This is the tactic that the enemy still uses today. And if we're honest, we too choose to believe these lies. We believe the lie that God is withholding something We believe that God owes us something. We believe that God is keeping stuff away from us, even though he has provided us everything we need. We look at our life, and we think we deserve this, or we deserve something better than this, because God, look, I'm doing all the right things. Why is life this hard, God? And then we begin to look at other people. And we begin to covet and want what they have. So then all of a sudden, my things that God has provided me and given me to steward are no longer good enough for me. I want your car. I want your house. I want your bank account. I want your spouse or your marriage or your kids or your career or whatever else. And we grow discontent. And we grow frustrated with God because we think we deserve this. But God has given us everything that we need. Just like he provided for Adam and Eve in the garden. But Satan lies to them and says, hey, don't believe God. You can't believe God. He is, in fact, indeed withholding from you. See how good this fruit looks over here? Taste it. It's amazing. You won't die. God's a liar. Sin always promises you something better, and it never, ever delivers. Adam and Eve believed those lies, 
and disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the one tree God told them not to. Sin and death then enters the world and wreaks havoc ever since. You see, sin is more than just making bad choices. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. God tells Adam and Eve, don't. The one thing, don't eat from this tree. And they completely disobeyed God. And sin destroys relationships. It cost Adam and Eve. They were sent out of the garden, away from the presence of God. They could no longer dwell with God the way they had. Being sent out of the garden, though, is actually a mercy on them. Because we see God clothes their nakedness on the way out. God sacrificed a lamb instead of them. God put a lamb to death instead of them. God is so holy, he can't be around sin. Or in his just wrath against it, he would consume the sinner. Sin is offensive to God. And sin has devastating and eternal consequences. Sin brings death. And it is a rightly deserved death. And a rightly deserved punishment. And God would have been completely just to do away with Adam and Eve. That would not have changed who he was. And God would be completely just to leave us just like we are. Dead in sin with no hope. But at the end of Genesis 3, we're given a promise. God promised to send a rescuer to undo the curse that sin brought into the world, which is why Jesus had to come. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that when sin entered the world, we were dead in sin. At our physical deaths, the spiritual part of us, our souls, will be separated from our bodies. Death leads to separation. Spiritual death leads to separation from God. Sin separates us from God. Again, sin has consequences. And our greatest need is to be reconciled back to God. And we can do nothing in and of ourselves in order to be reconciled back to God because our sin debt is too steep. No amount of work, no amount of effort, no amount of good moral deeds will ever be enough to pay for what we've done. We need the perfect sinless life of Jesus. We need his cross, we need his resurrection, and we need his ascension to purchase our pardon. God laid the punishment, the rightly deserved punishment for our sin upon Jesus. 
the Son of God. Jesus had come to earth. Jesus had to come to earth or we would be separated and deservedly so from God and his gifts for all eternity. Jesus came to earth in order to call sinners to faith and repentance. Jesus came to earth to reconcile us back to God. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from the darkness that sin has brought into the world. And Jesus has revealed this to us. Jesus offers us light and life. Light reveals our neediness. And Jesus offers us life. Jesus calls us into a family, a community that bears fruit in Jesus Jesus calls us to live lives that are marked by holiness, faithfulness, and repentance of sin. Bearing fruit in Jesus, in short, means to live for Jesus and to grow in Christ. We do this through filling ourselves up with the word of God and through worship and living life alongside other believers. That is the mark of true Christianity. It's not that we are observing a set of rules and regulations handed down by a good moral teacher. No, the mark of true Christianity is dependence on God. Believers in Jesus are those who were once dead to sin, but through faith in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you have been made right. You have been made alive in Christ. You were once cut off from God. Christian, you were once cut off from God. But now you have been brought near and reconciled to Jesus by the blood of the Lamb. You have been purchased to no longer live for yourself, but to have God by the Holy Spirit flowing in and through you. Are you a loving person? Are you a peaceful person? Are you characterized by self-control? Are you joyful? These things are the marks of, of true Christians. Not that we're saved by these things, but that these things are evidenced by our relationship, our communion with Jesus. Is this true of you? Is this true of you? If not, consider. Consider if you really know Jesus. Do you really know Jesus? Do you really have a relationship with him? If this is not true of you, and you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not marked by these things, then consider your commitment to Christ. Christian, do you delight in Jesus? Does the knowledge that Jesus has overcome your sin and your death on your behalf move you to, to love and delight and to worship in Jesus.
Do you desire to grow in your relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit? The purpose of the work of Jesus on the cross is the glory of God in saving sinners. And therefore, the response of the church as the people of God is to glorify God in our lives by growing in God through holiness, through the scriptures, through worship, and through fellowship with the body. The good news of the gospel tells us that we are so messed up, so broken, so hopeless and helpless, so desperate and needy and yet so loved and valued that the God of the universe, the God eternal, came and dwelt among us and endured our punishment in order for us to know him and to find our hope in him and to find our joy in him and to glorify him and worship forever. What if, what if 2024 was your best year ever? The year, maybe everyone should look at me. Hey, everyone look at me. (laughs) What if this was the year where you stopped pretending like you were okay? What if you stopped pretending like you were okay and just were honest with the Lord, with yourself, with others in your community? What if you stopped pretending that you were okay? Because we all know you're not, because none of us are. And what if, instead of pretending like you were okay when you're not, you really leaned into the gifts of Jesus to you? to confess your neediness, to humble yourself and confess your neediness to Christ, and grow in the Lord through confession and repentance of sin. What if, what if we all committed to a relentless pursuit of Christ? What would change in your life, Christian, if, you really took the calling of the Lord on your life seriously. Like you rearranged your priorities so that Jesus would matter to you. What would change in your life? What would change in your life if you took the calling of Christ on your life seriously? I'm going off script here. Maybe what you need is accountability. Like to stop trying to figure it out on your own. Because I'm going to be honest, that's not working for you. Because it doesn't work. That's not what we're called to. What if you were just honest with one another? The people in your group that love you and that you have covenanted with to do life with. And just said, hey, I'm not okay, and I need help. Just a little vulnerability. And then, Christian, as a response to the person making that plea, what if you took the calling of God on your life seriously to walk with that person? What would change in your life? What would change in our church? What would change in your marriage? What would change in your family? 
If you committed the things of the Lord, if you committed your time, your talents and resources to Christ. What if you took work off the throne of your heart and put Jesus there? What if you took your spouse or your desire for a spouse off the throne of your heart and put Jesus there? What if you took your kids off the throne of your heart and put Christ there? What if you took money off the throne of your heart and put Christ there? I think that about covers all of us, right? What if we intentionally tried to die to our sin as Christians like Christ is calling us to? What would change in your life? What would change in your life if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And not just some box check menu item that you have to do or feel like you need to do. What would change in your life if you really took the calling of Jesus seriously? In the context that John is writing, John is writing this after the resurrection of Jesus. So he's reminding us that the light of the world has come into the earth. And though the darkness tried to defeat him, the darkness has not and will not overcome it. So what that means for you, Christian, is that you are already victorious. So take a step of faith. John writes to implore his Jewish readers to not miss their Messiah, the way that the Jewish forefathers had done when Jesus was alive. And the same invitation is for us as well. Church, don't miss your Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. If we get to the end of our lives and all we have to show for it is all the stuff we have accumulated because we think we need it, or all we have to show for it is a good career or families or our families that have like somehow gotten out of marriage and parenting unscathed, but we don't have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, with God of creation that wants us, we too will have missed Christ. Don't miss Jesus. He has come into our space in order for us to know him. Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is not a moral teacher. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is our savior. He has made a way for you to not be separated from God forever. Do you believe that? Like, not just here, but do you really believe that here in your heart? And if you say yes, praise God. But if you say yes, do you function like you believe that? Are you functioning like this is true of you? Again, if the answer is yes, praise God. Now, in view of that yes... Are you investing deeply in the body of Christ? Are you discipling your kids? Are you in deep relationship with other believers? Are you living on mission for Jesus?
do you believe that Christ is your Savior? And if the answer is no, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to remain where you are. Jesus is inviting you right now into a relationship with him. All that is required of you is the faith to admit that you need him. He is offering you himself. And that is far greater than anything the world has to offer. You are not called to do this alone. Christ gives us his Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to convict us of sin. And we're also given the church as a gift to us. A lot of us, a lot of us Christians, try to do this alone. And we'll remain feeling stuck a lot. Or if you don't feel stuck, I can promise you that investing deeply into the local body of, of believers is such a blessing and a necessary part of your growth in Christ. So the encouragement as we begin the year together is lean into the gifts of grace to you. Christ went to the cross to call you to more than just mere sentimentalism. Christ went to the cross to call you to more than just some fake religious devotion. Christ went to the cross and the God of the universe has died in your place to offer you life. Consider this Jesus. Confess your sins because he is faithful to forgive you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.